Hello everyone and welcome to this week's Totem Talks. I'm Mark Smith. I'm Helen Fruin. And together we tend to just ramble. I Sorry, I take that back. I ramble on. <laughs> I try to keep on point. <laughs> Helen tries to bring us back on point. And in between us, we hope to stumble upon some wisdom. And this week, the wisdom we hope to stumble upon is good discrimination. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a particularly interesting topic. We were talking about this podcast uh, before recording and uh, both of us got quite antsy about this. Mm. Um, for different reasons, I think. Mm. Um, but you mentioned this notion of good discrimination, and I'm fascinated to hear your take on this. So please, the floor is yours. So this came from two different client conversations over the past couple of weeks, where one client has asked, in a tone of voice that suggests this is an unreasonable request, Helen, in the interview skills training that you run for us, would it be okay if you talk about anti-racism and unconscious bias and making sure that we're not making unfairly discriminatory decisions when we interview. Would it be okay, Helen, if if you cover that in the workshop? Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised by that tone of voice that would suggest that in, in any way that's an unreasonable request. Yeah. On the flip side then, I've also been asked if I could run interview skills training that is just interview skills training. And let's not fluff it up with any of this unconscious bias, anti-racism stuff, because we just want interview skills training. Mm -hmm. So those are two quite opposite ends of a similar question, which is how much does unconscious bias and anti-racism and anything else you could put in that field, how much is that a fundamental part of interview skills, selection skills? Yeah. And it is absolutely at the core. You can't have one without the other. And it got me thinking about years and years and years ago when we introduced in workshops, you know, my first ever job, uh, what is recruitment? What, mm. what are we doing in recruitment? We are discriminating. Yeah, it's active discrimination. It's discrimination. But not in the not in the sense of it, of the way we use the word currently. And this is the thing. This it, is why we yeah. called it good. This talk is good yeah. discrimination. Because what we need to be doing is discriminating against the job criteria. Yeah. What is it that is going to make you brilliant at this job? Let me make sure I'm interviewing against that, as opposed to the myriad other things that are likely to be distractions, Mm -hmm. which would be unfair discrimination. The quality of a handshake. Eye contact. Eye contact. Spelling mistakes, depending on the job. And this is the thing, right? It's depending on the job. Maybe a, a quality of your handshake is fundamental to the job. Again, I'd be like, seriously, could we not just have a quick conversation and that's resolved? Yeah. Because there's also something here about whether you believe someone can change or can respond to feedback. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a whole thing for me about we cannot talk about interview skills or good selection practice without talking about unconscious bias, racism, the, the way that we have biases. Uh, so the, one of the forms of unconscious bias is called affinity bias, which means we like people like us. So as a white woman, I am statistically more likely to hire white women. How can you talk about interview skills without addressing that? Absolutely. And I think this is, this is the difference between conscious bias and unconscious bias. I think for me, there's, you know, if a Nottingham Forest supporter walks in for a job here, they're not going to get it. That is conscious discrimination. There's nothing <laughs> unconscious about that decision from my perspective. Um, 
But like I say, the, the quality of a handshake, that initial impression, it doesn't have a conscious impact upon me. Mm. It just leaves that lingering kind of... Mm. Mm. I, d- I didn't make the best impression. Yeah, and that best impression can resonate like like a dropping a stone in water. It can resonate through the rest of the interview because I don't think what people realise is that the interviewer, whether that is you or somebody else, you're, you're a human being too. You're not a computer. You don't have the capacity to just switch your upbringing, your environment, your mourning, your, your argument with your wife the night before. You can't switch that off. You're going to take all of that into an interview with you and those can have quite powerful impacts on how you relate to the person sat in front of you. So, yeah, it's it's discrimination. I want to be very careful with that word. Well, we're talking about fair discrimination versus unfair discrimination. Mm. So what we want to advocate for is fair discrimination. Yeah. How are we being absolutely crystal clear that the reason I think you're not right for this job is because you don't match these criteria that are fundamental to doing the job well. Yeah. And I think maybe in that, when you've got the criteria for the job, you can actually assess them. Are, are, in what way will these criteria um, be prejudicial against this or that group of people? Is that true? Uh, yes. So uh, let's take, for example, the the handshake and the eye contact. So you could say, well, if I did think... So t- take my line of work. I go out and I meet clients face to face. The quality of eye contact and handshake will have an impact on the relationships that I build. So you could say, okay, Helen, you've got this really weak handshake. You're not very good at making eye contact. You're not going to suit this job. Well, perhaps the reason for my poor handshake is that I have a, a muscular issue, perhaps even a disability. Perhaps the reason for my lack of eye contact is Asperger's, mm-hmm. in which case then you could say, well, arguably it's fair because of the criteria of the job, but arguably it's unfair because it discriminates against people with Asperger's or people with muscular issues in their hands. So, and this becomes a bit of a, well, doesn't that get ridiculous? Because then you could always argue you're discriminating against someone, which then pulls back the question of, well, really how fundamental to the job is it? Mm-hmm. What if I were to go to client meetings and explain to the person, forgive me if my eye contact isn't quite what you'd expect, this is why. Isn't that a reasonable adjustment we could make to the job? Oh, that would be an interesting one, actually. I don't know. I think there are are many uh, groups who support the work of disabled people who would say you don't need to apologize for... Oh, yes, very good point. ...for for anything. In fact, so I would be be doubly cautious Mm. about about that approach i think reasonable adjustments within the job of are, are commonplace certainly so in, in my background in terms of engineering so um you know toyota when i was there at the time had a big push towards getting more women involved with manufacturing the challenge is that um, women statistically can't lift as much as a man can and so they invested millions of pounds in developing uh, machinery that was capable of lifting heavy components so that they could bring more women into the factory workplace. Mm. Um, Reasonable adjustments in that environment do seem to make a lot of sense. Mm. And um, there's just a monetary value. You you don't have to apologize for being a woman in that environment. Um, But where where it's behavioral, where it's interpersonal, this Mm. is where I've always struggled. Yes. It's the interpersonal play. Where it all feels a lot more sensitive. Yeah. And, you know, I want to walk into a room and be confident 
but equally I don't want to smash everybody's toes with my overconfidence. This comes down to the fact that there is no simple answer. Mm. So if you're looking for some overall guide that says this is what you can discriminate against this yeah. is what you can't discriminate an in against. out matrix of solutions right. yeah life yeah. is not that simple no the key thing and this is your point about unconscious bias versus conscious bias is we need to stop and ask the question so i don't like that candidate because they had a poor handshake and their eye contact was terrible mm-hmm. let me press pause is that fair discrimination based on the job mm. Is it really so difficult to do this job with a poor handshake and bad eye contact? Or is that a conversation worth having? Or is that something that we could explore further? Mm. Is it just that they were nervous? Is it just there's all these other things? And I would argue 99% of the time, it's actually complete rubbish. And what we're doing, as you've described, it's kind of this subjective piece, this thing that's made a poor impression to us at the beginning, that because we've got this poor impression of the candidate, we've then ignored all of this other good stuff about them. Mm -hmm. Because really, am I going to say that on the basis of a one hour interview and a role play exercise where I could see the person in role, the only thing I want to pick up on is their eye contact and their handshake. Mm. It shows that I've been completely distracted by an arguably irrelevant point. Yeah. And is that primacy and recency effect? I mean, definitely primacy there, isn't it? Definitely. So the primacy effect, the way that our memory works is that we remember more about the first few minutes of a meeting and the last few minutes of a meeting. So first impressions do count. There we go. And given that we make that first impression in six seconds... You're all about the handshake. You're all about how somebody's dressed as they walk in. Mm -hmm. So if that's all I remember after the interview is that first six second impression, there's an issue again. Now, where do you sit on the, the, which side of the fence are you on? So is it, is it more important to train out? So let's, let's, let's go to the extreme here. So Mm. if I'm a professional interviewer or if I'm a hiring manager within a business, um, and I'm telling the world that I know how to interview people. Okay, so you're good. How good should you be? Should you be so good that you have completely screened out your primacy and recency effects? So you no longer have that six second initial impact window. You are a complete blank, of, a completely blank bit of paper. Do you, should we be encouraging interviewers to go to that length of self-discipline Or should we be saying, well, actually, you're a human being and the people who will be working with the person you're interviewing are in a similar place. They will be making judgments within the first six seconds as well. So where where do you sit on how an interviewer should be upskilling themselves? So the upskill is in delaying that judgment. Right. So to to say I'm going to make myself not human and not make any judgments is is ridiculous. We mm-hmm. can't do that, right? I'm I'm not going to be judgmental. I'm a human being. I am judgmental. We all are. So best practice in interviewing is to take the entire interview because to your point about well the team are going to have to work with this person, they will make judgments about the person, mm-hmm. but they'll make those judgments over a period of time. And even if they didn't like the person when they first met them in the 6 seconds, after 6 months of working with them or 2 years of working with them, they're going to have a lot more information to go on. So the whole idea with objective interviewing is to make detailed notes during the interview, be consistent, treat every candidate the same so that there is fairness, make detailed notes, and then after the interview, look at all of that information to make a judgment. 
so that rather than being driven by the primacy effect, the recency effect, the affinity bias of, oh, well, I like you because you're like me, you know, I could get totally distracted to come back to your Nottingham Forest example. If the first 10 minutes of the interview was you having banter about the fact that you're a Derby fan and they're a Notts Forest fan, then that could distract you from thinking you don't like this candidate. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually when you look then at the interview notes and you realise, gosh, after all of that silly banter, they really showed their skill. They really showed me that they're a talented individual. And so I'm looking at all of that information and making a judgment on that basis. That's what makes you a good objective interviewer with good discrimination. Excellent. So where does race come into our recruitment processes? Well, initially, you've got the statistics that shows if someone's got a very traditional white English name like John Smith, they are two to three times more likely to get an interview than Umar Adeyemi, Mm -hmm. a name that doesn't sound traditionally white English. So straight away, you've got an opportunity there to say, am I shortlisting this person for an inappropriate reason? Do I need to look at using blind CVs where I can't see the person's name? That also helps with gender bias, that I can't guess their gender. Yeah, Um, and don't also dismiss the, it's rare, but people do send in double CVs, one with one name, one with another, just to test the water. Because if you you do make a mistake, they're going to get you. You're going to get sued. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, good luck to everybody sailing that ship. So anyway, carry on. So that's an initial way that we can look out for where our bias is actually having a racist impact. Mm -hmm. The other thing that then comes up, and this is where it starts to get really sensitive and complicated, is education. Yeah. So if you look at degree classifications, if you set a bar, whether it's graduate recruitment or or not, if you just naturally look at a CV and say, I want to look for someone who got a 2-1 or a first in their degree, if you set that bar, you lose 19% of white applicants because 19% of white applicants don't get a 2-1 or a first. Okay, but you lose 43% of black applicants. So that's a massive difference based on a, oh, well, I'm, I'm looking for people with a 2-1 degree. And again, you might say, well, surely it's important to have a 2-1 degree. There is not enough evidence to show that having a good degree makes you a good employee. So I haven't got any facts to say that I need someone to have a 2-1 or a first. Mm. But when I say this gets complicated and sensitive, it's about what happens next. What reaction do we have to hearing that 43% of black graduates get a, a third in their in their degree. What reaction do we have to that? Oh, well, I guess black people aren't as smart as white people. Really? Is that the reaction you had? It's a reaction a lot of people have. And that's where racism is so built into our underlying understanding of things that for a lot of people, they say, well, then that's not unfair discrimination. Clearly black people don't do as well in degrees. That means then surely I shouldn't give a black person a job because they're not going to be as smart as the job. And they wouldn't necessarily say this consciously because as soon as you start saying it out loud, it sounds ridiculous and racist. So nobody would say this stuff out loud, but that's kind of the stuff that's going on under the surface for a lot of people. 
And that's what we need to challenge is what is wrong with our educational system that that's how those degree classifications are split. And you can see this right the way through from the way that uh, teachers discipline black children differently to how they discipline white children. Mm, Seeing that. Absolutely. So this systemic, and that's what we mean when we talk about systemic racism, it runs all the way through our systems. If we're having reactions to say, oh, well, maybe black people just aren't as smart. That's part of that systemic racism is that we assume that the system is perfect. Yeah, it's linear and it's it's treated treating people equally. Right. Or in which case, yeah. there's something wrong with you if you're not doing well yeah. in that system. And that's the whole meritocracy point, right? Indeed. We're back to the meritocracy. We're back to the meritocracy. And we're also back to, um, I was reading uh, in recently, I, I can't pronounce her name properly, but AOC, she's a senator in America. She's an awesome lady. Love her. Um, she got into a bit of a spat with Trump and she pointed out that... Um, a degree these days, given the costs associated with it, a degree is much closer to a sign of privilege yes. than it is a sign of competence. And again, this is my whole anti-academic argument as to why do we assume having a 2-1 or a first degree makes you a good employee? That's exactly that. Sum up for us because we have wandered off. If you are interviewing people, if you are looking in any way to improve the interview skills and improve the recruitment practices in your business, you have to start with systemic racism, unconscious bias. That is the basis with which you improve your interview skills. It's not a separate thing to talk about. It's not a, oh, I don't know if we want to go there because that's a bit sensitive. Let's be clear that you and I discussing this, we don't have the right answers. We don't know the right thing to say. Mm -mm. What's fundamental to all of this is that we have the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so in your business, if you're talking about interviewing, if you're talking about improving diversity, you need to have this conversation too. And maybe you start by saying, I don't have all the answers. I'm probably going to say something wrong, but we need to have this conversation. Absolutely. Be brave, everybody. It's the only way we're going to change the world. On that note, let's call it a day. Brilliant. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll see you next week. Bye.